The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. So let's see what God has to say today in Luke chapter 8. We're going through the Gospel of Luke. The whole, all 24 chapters, about a paragraph at a time, or scene by scene. It's been wonderful. Jesus probably died, rose, and ascended into heaven around 30 A.D. Then the church started by the 12 apostles, and then decades went by, and then God started having his saints write the teachings of Jesus down that would be preserved in Scripture And Luke is one of those books that Jesus had one of his servants write down. Luke uh, was a friend of the Apostle Paul. Paul wasn't one of the 12 apostles, but he came later. And he met Luke, and Luke uh, was already either saved or got saved. And Luke was a physician, a medical doctor. He helped Paul. He was a missionary. And around 60 A.D., after traveling with Paul for quite some time, the Spirit of God moved Luke to write down an account of the ministry of Jesus Christ to complement the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Mark. And that's exactly what he did. And Luke knew a gentleman, apparently, named Theophilus, who was an influential dignitary of some sort. We don't know a whole lot about him, but uh, Luke was interacting with Theophilus, and Theophilus is the direct recipient of this 24-chapter-long Gospel, where Luke is maybe evangelizing Theophilus or having a dialogue with him and asking him to seriously consider why Jesus is who he claimed to be. Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, the Messiah of the Old Testament, the Savior of the world, the judge of every soul, the creator of the universe. All those things Jesus claimed about himself, the religious establishment in his day, the Jews, they didn't like that. They hated that. They arrested him, falsely accused him, condemned him to death, crucified him, murdered him on a cross, Yet that was God's plan all along. God the Father poured out his wrath on Jesus while Jesus was on the cross. Jesus' death was meant for ill by these people who hated him, but it was meant for good because it was always God's plan that Jesus would die as a substitute for sinners. So Jesus died, and then he was buried, and he rose again three days later from the dead. He rose himself from the dead three days later in a new supernatural physical resurrection body. Spent 40 days with his disciples commissioned them and then he left was caught up into heaven at the ascension and he has reigned as king of the universe ever since then for 2,000 years he reigns on high he's the living Christ he's in a resurrection body he has promised he is coming again and he is we don't know when but in the meantime he calls his people to be faithful and also in the meantime he is the blessed savior who loves sinners and he is calling and wooing people to himself wooing sinners to himself, that they would recognize their sin, repent of their sin, and cry out to Lord Jesus that he might save their sin, not by their own good works or their worthiness, but solely by his grace and the fact that he is the risen, awesome God-man Savior of the world. And he's been doing that for 2,000 years. And in the meantime, before he returns, he's entrusted his people to share that message. That is called the gospel. That is the good news. It is the only hope of humanity. It is the only thing that can change your life. It is the only thing that can guarantee your future in eternity with God forever in glory. It's the only hope. 
That's Christianity. That's the gospel. That's the message of the Bible. That is who Jesus was. That's what he came to declare. And now we go back to Luke to see that, this continuing story that Luke in 60 AD is trying to communicate to Theophilus, pleading with him to embrace this Christ. So we left off last week with a, really a, a riveting, unprecedented miracle by Jesus as he was on a boat sailing across the uh, sea of Galilee with some of his disciples at nighttime, and a storm came in hurricane-like fashion on that lake and was taking the boat down, and they were all going to die. And they were fishermen. They were experienced fishermen, and yet they're screaming like little girls in a panic. So being that they lived their whole life on the Sea of Galilee and they had endured all kinds of various storms, they had never seen anything like this. So they knew this was an unparalleled storm that was going to take their life. Jesus was on that boat. He was asleep. They woke him up. He stood up and he calmed the storm. He rebuked the wind with a word. He simply said, hush, be still and instantly, boom. It was still. He calmed the storm instantaneously. And then his disciples who saw this, they were so overwhelmed at what they had just seen, they were more frightened by Jesus' miracle than the fear they had when they thought they were going to die from the storm. Because what they had was the fear of the living God in their presence in a human body. That is the greatest fear known to man, is the fear of the reality of a holy God. We will never experience anything like it because of his holiness and also in light of our sin. So the disciples that were on that boat, they, they were sailing about 10 miles or so, and they're going south, and they're going east, and they're leaving the area of Palestine or Israel headquarters there in Galilee and Capernaum where Jesus had been operating, and he needs to get away from the crowds and rest. So he's on this boat with some of his disciples, and they go over to this land called the land of the Gadarenes or the land of Gadara. It's a country area, countryside on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. It's op opposite of Galilee. You can go there today and visit. And uh, they've got some landmarks there that are actually mentioned in Scripture 2,000 years later. So this is true history. This is true geography. This really happened. So keep that in mind as we read the story because the story is astounding. Many people read this story today and they think, oh, this is fiction. This is sci-fi. This didn't really happen. There's no way this could happen. This stuff doesn't happen today. Therefore, it has to be fiction. This didn't really take place. But we know that it did. That's why it's so astounding. And really what it is, there's several verses. It's one of the longer passages we'll cover. It starts at verse 26. So we're going to go from Luke 8, 26, all the way to verse 39 and cover this story as one passage because that's the way that God gave it. And to preserve the continuity of the story, we're just going to walk through verse by verse and see this amazing riveting, unprecedented story, which is really a compelling portrait of the matchless Christ. And we see him in his incomparable glory as the God-man. Jesus' planet over the course of three and a half years, he lived in obscurity for 30 years. He wasn't out preaching. He wasn't doing miracles. Nobody knew who he was for 30 years other than, uh, oh, yeah, I think he's the carpenter over in Nazareth. Then God the Father ordained him for ministry, and then he began a preaching ministry. And even over the course of three and a half years, he didn't completely unveil his identity fully at the very beginning. He wasn't going around in his first sermon saying, I am the Son of God. I am God in the body. I am God in the flesh. He didn't do that. It was little by little, incrementally, declaring the good news 
that sin can be forgiven, and also the kingdom of God, that God was going to establish his kingdom on earth. But it was little by little incrementally that Jesus was giving out specific truth regarding his identity. He didn't fully unveil his identity in the beginning. As a matter of fact, after three plus years of ministry, miracles, preaching, private time with his 12 apostles, after three plus years, he had to stop, look at his 12 apostles and say, who do men say that I am? And they were confused. All kinds of different, oh, Jeremiah and Old Testament prophets and John risen from the dead and some even think you're the Messiah. But who do you think that I am? Peter, after three years, Peter gave the right answer. But he gave the right answer only because in that moment, God the Father had revealed that to Peter, that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. I bring that up because we need to keep that in mind as we're reading through Luke. It's a three-and-a-half-year ministry, and little by little, Jesus' identity of who he is is being unveiled. He's not unveiling it all at the same time. So that's why even after spending time with his disciples, maybe after two years, and he's, they're seeing miracles and Jesus preaching, and Jesus does this miracle of calming the waters, and they are in fear. And what did they say in verse 25? That's where we left off. We'll pick up there in Luke chapter 8, verse 25. They saw the miracle, and they, this was, they didn't say, oh, thank you, Jesus, son of God. We knew you could do it. They didn't say that, verse 25. They looked at each other and said, who then is this man? They didn't fully grasp who Jesus was yet. Who then is this man? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. They're still trying to figure out who Jesus is. A lot of people are trying to figure out who Jesus is. He, now, so now he's traveling to this land of Gadara. By the way, the land of Gadara, there where he's at in the eastern coast, not in Israel. So he's probably not dealing with Jews now. This is unique. Jesus was called to minister to the Jews. And that's pretty much exclusively what he did for three and a half years. This is an exception. In the land of Gadara, probably with non-Jews, non-Israelites, Gentiles, maybe pagans. How do we know? Well, because of the land and the demographics of it, but also because of their occupation. It says as soon as they land there, there, there are pig farmers there. Herds of pigs, hundreds of pigs. That was unclean if you were a Jew. That was outlawed by the law of Moses. The Jews, they had no dealings with pigs and unclean animals. This had to be quite a test for the disciples Jesus had on the boat. We have a divine appointment. The Father wants me to go to Gadara, and there they go, and they're going into Gentile, unclean, dirty, filthy, contaminated land, as far as your typical Jew is concerned. Jesus didn't think that because Jesus knew all human beings were made in the image of God. So that's his destination. That's where he's going. It's a divine appointment. It's not by coincidence. God the Father commissioned him to go there. It's going to be a short stay. He's going to do his ministry of proclaiming the gospel, doing a miracle to establish and verify that he is the one promised in the Old Testament as he's revealing little by little his identity, not fully disclosing it. And the people who see the miracle here in Gadara, they are amazed. They are shocked. They have fear. You know what the result is? It's not, they don't, oh, Jesus, you must be the God, the God man that we've been looking for. That is not their response. They're confused about who he is. We don't know who they think he is, but they might think he's the head demon or something because they don't want anything to do with him. Well, Jesus, thank you for liberating and healing one of our townspeople. We really appreciate that. Thank you. That's not their response. So even they struggle with this identity. So you see that everywhere Jesus goes. 
is nobody fully quite comprehends who, it, who he is in his fullness. Even Mary, who knew from an angel that she was giving birth to the Messiah of the Old Testament and raised Jesus for 30 years or was with him for 30 years, even she at times seems to not fully understand quite who this Jesus is. She does at the time of Pentecost and the illumination of the Holy Spirit, but everyone is struggling with that. There are only really one group of people on the earth at the time during Jesus' full ministry who knew the complete and full identity of who Jesus was, that he was the God-man, he was the eternal one, he's the Lord of all, he's the judge of every soul. And they knew this, crystal clear, they had the best theology, they were the most orthodox beings in existence. Who were they? They were Satan and his demons. How do I know that? Because Luke's already told us that and he's going to tell us again. Let's read the account in Luke 8, starting at verse 26. Keeping in mind, he just did this amazing miracle that frightened his own disciples. They get to shore. Who knows if they slept that night? And they get on the shore, and then all of a sudden, they are confronted with this scene. This may be foreign territory. Then they sailed, verse 26, to the country of the Gadarenes, which is opposite Galilee. And when Jesus had come out onto the land... He was met by a man. He's immediately confronted by some man. He is a stranger. He's met by a man from the city. He was a city dweller. Not just any man. It says he was possessed with demons, plural. He was a demon-possessed man. A demon lives inside this man, controls this man. And... Verse 27 goes on, and who had not put on any clothing for a long time. This is a naked man. This is a grown man. Confronting Jesus. Stranger. By the way, he wasn't living in a house. And he was not living in a house, but rather he was living in tombs. He lived in the graveyard. He lived at the cemetery. In the tombs, in the holes in the wall, in the dark caves, in the shadows away from the people, isolated, purposely so, that people might be protected. This was a dangerous man. Luke, Matthew tells us there were two of them, two men, two demon-possessed men. Luke and Mark focus in on the spokesperson or the main guy, the leader of the pack, living in the tombs. Can you imagine that? You go to a foreign land, you step on the shore, and all of a sudden some crazy, maniacal, out of his mind, insane, crazy, naked man comes running at you, screaming at the top of the lungs, jumping in your face, because that's what he's going to do. And he just came from the tombs, and he still probably got shackles hanging from his wrists that are made of metal that he ripped out. The fetters still hanging off of his body. Who knows what he looked like? Could be just totally emaciated. We know that he'd been trying to do self-mutilation to his body. Probably just a completely grotesque scene. Frightening, no doubt. I bet you all the apostles and disciples just quickly got behind Jesus. They were so scared. Verse 28, seeing Jesus, he cried out. See, there it is. He, literally, he saw Jesus from a distance. He's up on the hill probably where the cemetery is in the tombs. He sees a boat coming up. There's an intruder. And then he's running down the hill, stark naked, crazy wild man out of his mind, screaming at the top of his lungs, ready to confront this stranger named Jesus. Seeing Jesus, he cried out. And then he gets up to Jesus and says he fell, plopped down, fell before Jesus. So it's like, oh, there's another person I can go attack. And he's screaming like a wild man, running down the hill. And then all of a sudden, 
it registers, this is Jesus, this is the God-man, this is a unique man, this is God in the flesh. This is Yahweh. That's what happened. And it wasn't the human man that figured that out, it was the demons inside that man that quickly figured that out. So he cried out and fell before Jesus, and he said in a loud, shrieking voice, What business do we... This could be the two demon-possessed men, or it could also be the countless demons inside of the demon-possessed man. And they're, they're screeching at the top of their lungs. It's probably a really weird and eerie voice that doesn't sound like a human voice. Very common. What business do we have to do with each other? Jesus, Son of the Most High. Oh, wow. This man had never met Jesus, and he knows his identity perfectly to a T, unlike his own disciples who can't quite figure out who Jesus is. I want to read an earlier passage from Luke 4. Just you can keep your finger there. This was a common occurrence. For three and a half years, Jesus was continually confronting demon-possessed people, children, men, ladies, and the response was always the same. Sometimes he was meeting uh, crazy, maniacal, demon-possessed men in a graveyard or in a more sophisticated, elitist educational facility called the synagogue. And that's Luke 4, which we saw earlier, but just by way of reminder, uh, in Luke chapter 4, uh, verse 31 says, Jesus came down to Capernaum, that was his headquarters, to the city of Galilee, and he was uh, teaching them on the Sabbath, which is when he had synagogue, and they were amazed at his teaching, for his message was with authority. Verse 33, and get this, in the synagogue, here, it's, this would be in Sunday school, you know where you're supposed to be proper and have decorum and put a smile on your face, pretend everything's all right, follow the rules, be polite. In the synagogue, there was a man, get this, possessed by the spirit of unclean demons. The demon-possessed man in the synagogue. And the demon-possessed man, when he saw Jesus, cried out with a loud, shrieking voice. There it is again. Every time a human being that was uh, demon-possessed was anywhere near proximity with Jesus, who was the God-man, they, they could not contain themselves. They couldn't uh, resist the fact that they were being confronted by the holiness of Almighty God, and they were the antithesis of evil, and they couldn't hold it in. So this happened every time he confronted somebody demon-possessed. So this demon-possessed man screeched out in the middle of the synagogue lesson, the top of his lungs with a loud voice, and this is what the demon said to Jesus, Let us alone! Screaming, Leave me alone! Let us alone. What business, now the demons are talking to Jesus, what business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? How did they know that? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. <laughs> That's probably what it sounded like. Mark 3.10, just one more verse. Just to give you the background of the frequency, because we're just seeing one incident. This was regular, ongoing, routine. Uh, Mark 3.10, Jesus was going around healing people, doing miracles, ministering to people, preaching and teaching all day long, day after day. He healed many. They pressed around him, verse 11. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, through demon-possessed people, they would fall down before him. This was routine. Every single time. You know what God was doing? 
God was forcing Satan to bow the knee. Maybe you can control that man. Maybe you can control that boy with your thousand demons that's 12 years old. You can't control me. I'm God. And he forces them to bow the knee. So whenever the unclean spirits saw Jesus, they would fall down before him and they would shout, You are the Son of God. So they would, that's, a, that's incredible. They would declare Jesus' proper identity. You are the Son of God. You are the God-man. You are Yahweh of the Old Testament. You are the creator. You are the judge. You are the one that we are accountable to and we know it. And our doom is inevitable. They knew that. And the verse after that, it says that Jesus continually told the demons to shut up. Literally. I don't want you to tell that to anybody. Quit saying that. I don't want my identity revealed on your terms or your timetable, but on mine. Little by little in accordance with the Father's perfect plan. Let's go back to Luke 8. And we'll just walk through the story here. Um, picking up at verse 28 where they were begging Jesus, Son of God, Most High, I beg you, do not torment me, said the man. And so, verse 29, for Jesus had been commanding them, literally, Jesus had an, a dialogue with the demons, and he had already been commanding them, you know what, you need to leave. You need to leave this man now. And an amazing thing happens. The demons that are inside these two possessed men, they, they start playing with Jesus, and they want to make a deal. They want to barter a deal. They make a petition. They appeal to Jesus, kind of like Job did. Or uh, Job, Satan did in the days of Job with God. For Jesus had been commanding the unclean spirits to come out of the man, for it had seized him many times. Many times, over and over, this, this man had been possessed by demons. And he was bound with chains and shackles and kept under guard. And yet he would break his bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert or into the wilderness. Here's what uh, Mark says. No one was able to bind this demon-possessed man anymore, not even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. And constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs. You know how you hear the wolves, in the background every night? No, those weren't wolves. Those are two crazy, wild, demon-possessed men. Night after night, screaming among the tombs and the mountains, cutting themselves with stones. Mutilation. So the demons actually are trying to get this, this man to kill himself, destroy himself. Jesus asked, what is your name? And verse 30 says, and the demon said, legion, for many demons had entered him. Legion just means many. It means thousands. It was a military term. Thousands. Anywhere from 2,000 to 5,000. Uh, Mark tells us there were 2,000 demons in this man. 2,000 demons. in. The, how could 2,000 demons fit in a man? Because they're spiritual beings. Many demons had entered into this man. They were implore, So the demons inside this man were imploring and begging Jesus not to command them to go away out of the region or into the abyss, the abyssos. Abyssos, that's demon prison. There are demons confined right now. It's in the spiritual world. It's a real place. Peter mentions it. The book of Revelation mentions it seven times or so. Verse 32. Jesus listens to their appeal. And so now there was a herd of many swine, many pigs. They were probably some pig farmer. 
in the distance where he could probably see these, all these pigs, and they were feeding there on the mountain, and the demons implored Jesus to permit them to enter into the, the swine or the pigs. So that was their idea. So they make two appeals. Jesus, don't, don't send us away. Don't destroy us. Don't kill us. The time is not yet, says one of the Gospels. The, our time is not yet. They, they knew their eschatology. They knew the book of Revelation. They knew that Jesus would end the world of evil and Satan and demons by casting them in the lake of fire forever and ever and ever. The Gospel of Matthew tells us that hell was created for the devil and his angels. And the demons know that. And they're saying, it's not our, it's not our time yet. You haven't even died on the cross. That's what they meant, imploring him, don't send us away, don't send us into demon prison. Send us into those pigs over there. Why? Because they want to do damage to humans. They, want to, they need uh, a beachhead. They need some kind of modality in the physical world because they're spirits in order to operate and do their dirty deeds in certain ways at times. They can do things uh, to our mind through deception and that kind of stuff, but there are other things they can do if they can actually get inside either an animal, like these pigs, or how about a snake? To plummet the entire race of humanity into sin and to bring about a curse. That's what happened or to get inside of a human being. And amazingly, Jesus uh, allows that to happen. It says he, two times in the Gospel of Mark, it says he, and even here, he permitted them. Okay, he listened to their plea. He permitted them. So he permitted the demons to go into the herd of pigs. And so, verse 33, and the demons came out of the man because Jesus said, depart. It was just one word. Depart. Be gone. Just like he said, hush to the storms, be gone, depart. That's what he would do at an exorcism. Actually, Jesus didn't do exorcisms like they do today in some religions. Those exorcisms aren't real, where somebody's got a, a crucifix and they're going on for hours after hours, day after day, trying to cast that demon out. That's not in the Bible, nowhere in the Bible. When Jesus cast out a demon, he said it with one word, be gone, and they were gone. They did exactly what he said, and it was complete, and it was thorough, and it was instantaneous. That's the only kind of exorcism you have in the Bible. Everything else is either fictitious or futile. It's not real. Humans don't have the power over demons. We can't see demons. They're supernatural beings. The only one who has power over demons and Satan is God and Jesus. And if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit lives in you, and greater is he that is in you than Satan who is in the world. But that doesn't give us permission from God to go around casting out demons. We can't do that. It's not our job. The only command in the New Testament for Christians regarding demons, if they're around, God just simply said, resist the devil, resist him. Resist him and he will flee. Have nothing to do with him. Don't go near him. Don't try to uh, cast him out with a crucifix. Don't do incantations. Don't do prayer vigils. Don't try to confront him uh, and don't pray. Uh, Dear Satan, I bind you in the name of Jesus. No, you don't. First of all, you don't pray to Satan. You pray to Jesus. And we don't have the authority to bind Satan. That's God's job. We've got to stick with Scripture. Only Jesus could do this. Cast them out with a word. And he gave them permission. And the demons came out instantaneously of the man. All 2,000, says Mark. 2,000 demons. And they entered the swine, the huge, massive herd of pigs. And those pigs, they went hog wild. Verse 33. It said, the herd of pigs instantaneously, they rushed down the steep bank into the lake or the Sea of Galilee and instantly drowned. They were killed. They were murdered. That's what demons do. That's what Satan does. He's into 
murder, and death. He has a preoccupation with death. And that's typical of somebody who's controlled or possessed by a demon. They are preoccupied with death. Gothic, we would call it. So the pigs went down, and apparently some, one commentator said they committed suicide. <laughs> I'm not making these up. Anyway, take it for what it's worth. Verse 34, and when the herdsmen saw what had happened, so the men who owned these pigs saw this. And they, they knew the man that was demon-possessed, that he was a threat to everybody in town. Uh, Mark, I think, adds that those two demon-possessed men were so strong and so crazy and so violent and so evil and so wicked and so powerful and so unexpectedly intimidating as they would run around and chase people that no one could pass by that way in the neighborhood because of the threat of those two men. They were a threat. They were an imminent threat. And they were literally hell-bent on destruction and death because they were driven by these two thousand demons. So when the herdmen saw what had happened, this amazing miracle where they should have bowed the knee to Jesus, tell us more of who you are. Only God could do this. They didn't do that. They ran away and they reported it into the city and into the country and they told everybody in town. Matthew says, behold, they told everybody in town, every single person in town. Verse 29, and as a result, the entire city came out. The people went out of the city to see what had happened and they came to Jesus. They deliberately went to Jesus immediately. They investigated, they found Jesus, he was a stranger, they found the man also from whom the demons had gone out, and instead of celebrating the fact that he was there calm, he was collected, he wasn't naked anymore, he had his clothes on, he was ready to join society, he wasn't a threat to anybody, he's sitting down in a position of submission to Jesus, the master, they should have welcomed this, they should have embraced this. They'd never seen anything like it. That wasn't their response. They found the man sitting uh, from whom the demons had been cast out, sitting down at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. He was sane again. You know what? That means that he was insane prior to this. He was insane. You know what demons do? They make people insane. Are there insane people today? There are people who are insane. Insanity. We see all kinds of insanity all over the world like never before in our day and age. Insanity. For the first time in the history of the world, as far as I know, and I'm doing my research, we have a mass of people, a growing mass of people trying to tell us that a man is a woman and a woman is a man. That has never happened in the history of the world. I don't care what the weird, uh, distorted religion or what kind of perversion there was. That has never been true. And now it's the party line that everybody's embracing, trying to shove down our throat. That is insanity. And one of the earmarks of a demon-possessed person in the Gospels, if you put them all together and you do this profile and assessment of the traits and characteristics of somebody who is demon-possessed, insanity is one of them. Not always, but it is a trait. Today we have insane people. What do we do with them? Uh, we used to put them in insane asylums and put straitjackets on them. And sometimes we put them in prison in isolation. Today, more commonly, we give them drugs. Give them drugs like the insane, maniacal, demonically possessed young man at West Virginia University years ago who ended up slaughtering and killing many students on the campus in a fit of rage and then he made a YouTube video about it and he called himself, he did it in the name of Jesus Christ and he said it in the neary voice. That man was demon possessed. He was insane. But that was not their response. Um, this man who was in his right mind, you know what happened? When they found out what happened, they became frightened. No longer were they afraid of the demon-possessed man who they used to be frightened of so much so they wouldn't even go near him. 
Now, once again, their fright has been turned 180 on its ear. They are afraid of Jesus. They don't know who he is. They never met him before. They've never seen anything like this. No doubt his holiness had been exposed, which also exposes man's sin. And what do sinners do when they see God? They run. Just like Adam and Eve. They run. They try to hide from God, and that's what they're doing here. They don't want, they would, they would rather, we want, to, we want the pigs and the demoniacs, but we don't want you, holy Jesus. Sounds like a lot of people in the world today. We want insanity, sin, and perversion, but we don't want a holy God who can deliver us. Things haven't changed. The sinfulness of humanity. They became frightened, verse 36. Those who had seen it uh, reported to them how the man who was demon-possessed had been made well. He's been made well. That was not persuasive. That just scared them of the holiness of God and their, their accountability, their guilt, their shame just took over. They couldn't even think straight. One cause, rather quickly, a unanimous consent. Get that holy man out of here. Banish him from the town. You are not welcome. That's what the world says to Christians today. Jesus said... They hate me, they're going to hate you. That's a promise, John chapter 7. Verse 37, and all the people, everybody on, of the country of the Gadarenes or the Garrisons and the surrounding districts as well asked Jesus to leave. Actually, uh, the other two gospels say they implored him. They kept begging him, you need to leave. No, you can't, no, you can't go that way. You've you got to leave. No, no, you've got to get back in the boat. No, take your disciples with you. No, you are not welcome here. You need to leave. That's what it says. Continually begging and imploring till they got their way, for they were gripped with great fear. Second time, that's emphasized. So Jesus complies. He got into the boat and then he returned. Verse 38 But the man from whom the demons had gone out of was begging Jesus that he might accompany Jesus. This man had been changed, he'd been transformed. One of the Gospels tells us that this man got saved, saved, literally delivered. Sozo is the Greek word. It can mean physically delivered, and he was physically delivered. He was delivered of demons, so that could be true. That word is also used for salvation. Believe in Jesus, and you shall be saved. Sozo, same word. Maybe both were true. It says this man got saved. He was delivered of demons by Jesus with a word. That man probably immediately found out, wow, thank you. Tell me more. And his disciples there, maybe they're the ones that told him who Jesus was. Maybe he was spiritually saved as well. That would make sense because it says this man was imploring Jesus and begging him. Here's Jesus is about to leave. And the man from whom the demons had gone out was begging Jesus that he might accompany him. I want to get in the boat. I want to go with you guys. Hey, I talked to your disciples. I want to be one of those disciples. Can I follow you like they're following you? Please. What a beautiful scene. So it is odd that Jesus said no. You can't follow me now. You can't follow me here, but you can follow me. You can follow me by staying behind. And this was also Jesus' master plan. He said out of his own mouth that I have come not to the Gentiles. I've came to the house of it, the children of the house of Israel. This man was probably a Gentile. He couldn't be part of the 12 apostolic Israelite Jewish Jews by which the church would be founded. A missionary to the Gentiles would come later. His name was Paul. So this didn't fit Jesus' timetable, but no doubt it was a gracious exchange and Jesus sent him away, basically commissioning him to do his work 
in his region here on that side of Palestine in what was called the Decapolis area. Verse 39, Jesus said, return to your house and describe, tell, explain, proclaim what great thing God has done for you. Be a missionary. This guy went from a demon-possessed, out-of-his-mind, insane maniac to a brand-new missionary all in one day. He didn't have to go to missionary school. He didn't have to go through missionary training. He's commissioned personally by Jesus. And it's real simple. What do you need to do to be a missionary? You have to know the content of the gospel accurately. You have to have believed it and embraced it and experienced that it changed your life. And God made you a new creature. You are qualified to be a missionary, at least in some respects, to just tell people your testimony. So do that. Go and tell everybody you know what God has done for you, the gracious thing he's done for you. So he went away in obedience, proclaiming ongoing. He, so that's in a continual, ongoing manner. This is He became a street preacher, apparently. Proclaiming, and it was a simple message, proclaiming throughout the entire city what great things that Jesus had done for He says, tell them what God has done for you, and he's telling them what Jesus has done for him because Jesus is God. Boy, I want to meet this guy in heaven. He has no name. He's just the demon-possessed missionary, or the formerly demon-possessed missionary, faithful man of God that Jesus changed his life. Uh, one of the Gospels says that as he went out and preached, they were amazed at his story, at his testimony. They were probably amazed at his testimony more than anything and, and connected that with his truth that it's got to be true. No one could change somebody like that, a demon-possessed man that we knew. And he talks about this exchange with Jesus, who was God in human flesh, and changed his life and saved him and made him a new creature. How awesome is that? And you too can be a missionary. All of us can. It's really that simple. To be a missionary, to be qualified, you've got to be changed by Jesus Christ. He had to have invaded your life. Maybe you weren't demon-possessed, but if you weren't a Christian, you were controlled by Satan and his demons, even if you weren't possessed, because that's what the Bible says, right? Jesus said in John 8, before you're a Christian, you're, Satan is your father. If you don't know Jesus Christ, Satan is your father. And what's even more terrible about that is most people don't realize that if they're not saved. They wouldn't admit that. They stiff arm that idea. No, Satan's not, no, I'm not a Satanist. I'm a, religious, I'm a good person. I've never killed anybody. No, no, you're not. Satan is your father and he's very deceptive and he makes you feel good about yourself and he makes you even be religious and a nice person and do good stuff. He's got you hoodwinked. He's got you deceived. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says he's blinded your minds so you can't even see the truth. Ephesians 2.1, read it. It says, if you are not a Christian, and this was true of everybody before they became a Christian, we were, son, we were dead in our sins, spiritually dead. We were dead in our sins, and we, we were being controlled by Satan and his demons. We were walking as children of disobedience in keeping with the prince of the power of the air. That's who we were before we were Christians, and if you're not a Christian, that is who you are now. That's your identity. So this reminds me of a conversation I had recently, just a couple of months ago on this campus when someone was talking to me and I made a comment about demon-possessed people out there. And they said, whoa, so you think people are demon-possessed today? And I said, yeah, just as much as in the days of Jesus. And they're like, what? Yeah, really? And I understand why they question that because if you read the entire Old Testament, which is 4,000 years of world history, you don't find demon-possessed people all over. Almost you don't find them anywhere. Where are all the demon-possessed people? The prophets weren't casting out demons. They're almost non-existent demon-possessed people. 
Then you get to the New Testament, and all of a sudden, boom, there are demon-possessed people all over the place, everywhere Jesus goes. Then all of a sudden, Jesus leaves, goes to heaven, and ascends, and then we're back to where we were in the Old Testament. You read through the book of Acts, you read through the epistles, and there's virtually no reference to demon possession whatsoever. Maybe two examples that are an exception in the book of Acts, but in the epistles, it's not even mentioned. It's like, what happened? Did the demons go away? No, they didn't. The demons are still here. The demons are just like in the synagogue where there was a man going to synagogue who probably had a scroll who claimed to know Yahweh, and yet he is demon-possessed. But nobody knew it. Nobody knew. Because the demons, they are sneaky. They want to remain anonymous. They operate clandestinely. Sometimes they operate as good people or as an angel of light. They don't want to be identified. They're like cockroaches under the rocks or in the dark until the light goes on. And then they get fully exposed. Jesus was the light of the world. He came and he exposed it all. The underbelly of Satan's entire satanic network just came out of the woodworks. And they're screaming and yelling. And they are confronted and frightened by Jesus, the Son of God. That's what happened. Then Jesus leaves and the world is the same. 1 John 5 says that Satan is the God of this world. The whole world lies in the lap of the wicked one. He's the prince of the power of the air. He's blinding every unbeliever out there. He's still operating. Jesus just isn't here exposing it all. So let me ask you, do you know anybody that's demon-possessed? You might be thinking, oh, no, I don't think so. No, actually you do. You just don't know they're demon-possessed. Have you ever met anybody demon-possessed? Many of us would probably say, I don't think so. The answer is, well, according to the Bible, actually you have. You just don't know it. And Satan, he prefers it that way. But again, if you go back to that profile, take all the examples of demon-possessed people in the Gospels, and there are characteristics about them. They hate the truth. They are driven by lies. They gravitate towards lies. They are hell-bent, as I said, on destruction and death. They're preoccupied with death. They start rock bands and they call them Megadeth. They have uh, another thing. This man was naked for a reason. That's Satan. Complete, total, aberrant sexual perversion is a characteristic of demon-possessed people. Wherever you see uh, Satan and his demons predominant, you're going to see sexual immorality of some sort. Those are all the characters. False religion, swearing. You ever walk down somewhere like San Francisco? Or anywhere, and you see uh, people on the street. There are times where there's some really scary people living on the street, and they are, and you walk by, and you can hear them. They are cussing up a storm. Every swear word in the book, and the most dominant uh, swear word they're using, blankety blank, this is Jesus Christ as a cuss word. They weren't taught that. That comes naturally. That is driven by a demon. It is. Satan rules this world, the systems of this world, the ideologies of this world. He's behind the scenes of what's going on through people. Systems that are evil, hell-bent on death, the entire abortion organization, that is death. On and on it goes. That's the reality of a fallen world. And Satan, who roams around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Well, if that's frightening, well, we should be frightened a little bit about reality. Maybe we need to think about Satan's existence and his demons a little more often as Christians. I think we should because Jesus told us when you pray, pray every day. And part of your daily prayer, pray for protection against the evil one, Satan. 
When's the last time you prayed against Satan? Not to Satan, against Satan. And not on your own authority, but in the authority of Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, God the Father, protect me from Satan. Lord Jesus, remove the satanic blindness that is blinding my relative, my close friend, who doesn't understand the gospel. Because that's what the Bible says. It is supernatural. It is satanic. And only supernatural act of God can rip that away. That's why we need to pray to God for protection from Satan and his demons. And as a Christian, you have the Spirit of God living in you. And like I said from 1 John, be encouraged. Do not be afraid. Resist the devil and he will flee. Have nothing to do with him. Just pray against him in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. God will protect you. His angels will watch over you. That is a promise from God. And the most powerful weapon you have against Satan is the gospel. He hates the gospel. Let's give God all the glory for his control over all things. Father, we do thank you for this day and the, the opportunity and privilege to gather with the saints, the, the family of God, to sing to you and the treasure of your word, the Bible, Scripture. God, this story is amazing. Uh, 2,000 years old. And we read it, and with the help of your Holy Spirit, we understand it like it happened yesterday. Jesus is alive. He's the reigning Lord. Thank you for the reminder that he has power over everything, over nature like we saw last week, and over the entire invisible, supernatural, demonic world that the world wants to ignore, pretend it doesn't exist, but we know that it does. It's real. It is a threat. And thank you for the resources we have in the gospel the indwelling Holy Spirit, the power of prayer, the power of your word, a relationship with you that protects us from Satan and his demons. And God, I pray for those who don't know Jesus Christ, particularly those we know personally in our family, friends, colleagues at work who have resisted the gospel and they don't even know their own status, that they are in bondage, demonic satanic bondage and they're not even aware of it and they're vulnerable and it is dangerous and we just pray through your spirit that you continue to soften their heart make them teachable rip away the blindness from their own sin and from satan himself so they might see the glory of the gospel repent be saved and know you all for your glory we pray in christ's name amen thank you for listening for more information about creekside bible church please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com